If you've been here with us the last couple months, we have been studying um, a, a series called A Glimpse of God. And the purpose of it is uh, to explore through Old Testament characters uh, who God is and how God interacts with his people. Um, you know, in each, in each story that we read, we learn a lot about humanity, about that individual character. Uh, we ask questions of ourselves based on that person. But ultimately, uh, the purpose of these stories that we read in the Old Testament uh, is to demonstrate to us who God is and, and how he functions amongst his people. And so today, the, the text that we're going to be in, is uh, it begins in Genesis chapter 37, and it's a story of a man named Joseph. Now, I in my life have uh, experienced... Uh, a vast array of things, right? Uh, from God's incredible blessings, having grown up in a, in a family um, with, uh, with two parents that loved us dearly, uh, having opportunity to go to college and, and travel the world over the years, uh, feel so blessed by God in so many ways, and yet uh, experience real challenges in life. I think like all of us, right? Uh, betrayal and, and hardship. In, in the story today, Joseph is going to be betrayed by his brothers, uh, by his family, and, um, you know, I've experienced I remember one time I was probably, I don't know, was I 12 or 13 or something, and we were on a road trip, like down to Texas, I think, and my brother and I got in a fight, and he was sitting behind me in the van, and he punched me in the face, and uh, I had braces at the time, and so after I had pulled my lip off of, you know, my braces, uh, my mom jumped in between, and I didn't even get to hit him back, and my whole life, I've wondered who betrayed me more, my brother or my mom, and that you know, situations. So we've all experienced betrayal. We've all experienced um, uh, good things in life, right? But I don't think any of it, like, scratches the surface of this man, Joseph, the highs and the lows and the, and the experiences that he had. So the challenge we face this morning is we have 14 chapters to cover. Um, so here's how I want to do it. I want to take snapshots of the life of Joseph. So we're going to look at eight snapshots in his life, right? The story we're going to talk about, I believe it spans 22 years of his life, and, and, and we're going to catch these just little pieces of his life. We're going to piece that together in the end and ask what it teaches us, uh, uh, you know, what, what we can learn from Joseph's ex- experience. And then most importantly, we're going to ask, what do we learn about God uh, in, in the life of this man, Joseph? So here we go. We're going to be, begin in Genesis chapter 37, and there in the first verse. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Jake Deanhill speak on, uh, on Jacob, and uh, Jake spoke on himself. Yes, he was really proud of that. Um, and so Jake spoke on Jacob, and, uh, and, and this is going to tell the story of his children. Uh, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Now, this is significant. Um, uh, God had made a promise to a man named Abraham. He said, I'll make you as numerous as sand on the seashore. He says, I'll bless you that you can be a blessing to all people. And uh, he says, and I will give you a land. I will give you the land of Canaan. What's interesting, and maybe we've, you've not noticed, is immediately Abraham and his descendants moved down to the land of Canaan. So as we approach the story of Jacob and, and uh, this young man, Joseph, uh, and, and his brothers, uh, they are living in the land promised to them. 
Now, now just a few of them, right? Uh, just a number of people uh, living there in, uh, in, in Canaan, but they're living in this land that they had been promised, okay? So this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, uh, his father's wives. Those are stepmothers, and they have terrible names. You can feel bad for them if you want. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons uh, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. So this sets the stage for our story. A man named Joseph, uh, who is his father's favorite of his 12 sons, uh, um, his father Jacob loves Joseph the most. Now, Joseph has come back to his father with a report about his brothers who are um, uh, tending the herds out in the fields, uh, who are working the fields that they own. And, uh, and he comes up back with this bad report. His father recognizes in him leadership ability, right? He, he recognizes uh, something special about Joseph, or he loves him most for whatever reason. He gives him this ornate robe. And if you grew up knowing Bible stories, you've seen the technicolored coat and the coat of many colors, and you've seen uh, Broadway productions or uh, cartoons about this story, Joseph, and you've always looked at his coat and said, that's really ugly. I would not want to wear that coat, right? That's what we've all thought when we watch those, uh, those films. But um, what's happening here is special, and, and it, um, it's important to understand what's happening. You see, his father has placed him in charge. Instead of doing the back-breaking work in the field, his father has said, you will wear the fancy coat and you will be the overseer of your brothers. You will be the one to, to go between me and them. You'll watch over them. You'll report back to me. You can wear a beautiful coat because um, you won't be doing the back-breaking work in the field. So Joseph is fulfilling the role that his father has placed him in. Uh, our first snapshot of Joseph is that he is favored by his father. Right. Uh, we continue in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, uh, than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were, uh, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly a sheaf rose up and stood upright. Uh, well, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So Joseph, um, uh, he is uh, favored by his father and he is hated by his brothers. And maybe some of it for good reason. Uh, if you have a dream like that as a teenager, don't tell your brothers about it. It's going to make them mad, right? So maybe there's a little arrogance in here. I don't know what's going on with Joseph, but he has this dream and he chooses to tell his brothers, I think I will always rule over you. And they hate him all the more. So the story that seems so blessed and so good in his father's household uh, will soon take a turn for the worse. We'll jump forward to the end of verse 17, chapter 37, verse 17, and it says, so Joseph went after his brothers and he found them uh, near Dothan. His father has again sent him out to, to look over what's happening. Verse 18, uh, but, they said to him, but they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here's, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. 
Come now, let us throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Uh, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Uh, let's not take his life, he says. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came uh, to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, uh, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Um, come, let, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So Joseph, from the highest in his family amongst his brothers, uh, to now a slave. Uh, he's favored by his father, but hated by his brothers, and finds himself sold for silver. You know, one of the brothers said, hey, what will we gain if we just kill the guy or if we just get rid of him, right? And so you might be curious, what did they gain? Uh, they gained about three months' wages um, at like a 10 or $15 an hour wage. Like, they did not gain much. Slip between the brothers, they gained like a week's pay, right? Uh, they gain almost nothing, uh, but their hate has driven them to a point where all they can think to do is get rid of this brother who is so loved by their father. So Joseph finds himself on what much of, must have been a treacherous and terrifying journey down to Egypt. As he's surrounded by other slaves, we don't know all the details of the story, but we know he's not treated well. We know he's not greeted well when he arrives in Egypt. Uh, from the highest in his family to the lowest of lows, Joseph finds himself in a market up for sale in Egypt. The story continues. We'll pick it back up in, uh, in chapter 39, verse 1. Joseph has been favored by his father, hated by his brothers, now sold for silver. 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. So here's what we learn about Joseph in this text. He's blessed by God. Even the most devastating of circumstances in his life, even the most de devastating turn of events in life, uh, will not squelch the powerful work that God intends to do in Joseph's life. You know, I, I find um, myself wanting to resonate in that story, wanting to say that so when we face struggles and trials in life, uh, trust in God because he is working out something beautiful. And I think that's very true, and I also think that can be very trite. Um, I know what it can be like 
to be in hard times, to feel broken and to cry out to God. You know, we balance texts like the story of Joseph who, you know, anything he touches turns to gold. That's not true. That's actually a fairy tale and not a biblical thing. But it's a figure of speech, right? I mean, everything goes good for him even when things are going terrible. And, and we maybe balance this story with stories like the stories of Job or David uh, running for his life and hiding in the desert who just cry out to God saying, God, where are you in the difficult times? So I do want to just take a moment to step back and, and to balance um, that, that God's blessing and provision is there in every one of those stories mentioned. Uh, but we have to be careful when we look at stories like Joseph's not to gloss over the very real hurt and the very real struggle that exists in our lives and the lives of others that existed in Joseph's. Uh, his struggles are not over. But God is good, and, uh, and God is working powerfully through Joseph in this moment. So Joseph finds himself in um, uh, a high official's house, the captain of the guard, um, and he finds himself ruling over that house. He, he's living like an upper-class citizen now in Egypt. It's incredible what God has done. However, um, in uh, end of verse 6, uh, we'll pick it up. He's blessed by God, but in the end of verse 6, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now this is Bible speak for he's hot right? He's just really good looking is what they're trying to say there. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and came uh, and, and she said, come to bed with me. Um, now, she doesn't want to play board games, right? She doesn't want to read poetry together. We know what's happening here. Uh, she is trying to seduce this man named Joseph. Maybe she's the original. You've seen like Desperate Housewives. They got it from this right here. Just so you know, this is where they got that idea. Um, so in verse 8, uh, but he refused, right? He, he refuses her request. Uh, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And, uh, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. Uh, she caught him by his cloak and said, come to, me, uh, come to bed with me. Uh, but he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran out of the house. When he saw uh, that he had left his cloak, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called to her household servants. Look, she said to him, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. Here's what we know about Joseph. He is constant in temptation. Right When temptation comes, uh, he avoids it at all costs. So he avoids speaking with her. He avoids being with her, and when trapped, he runs away from the situation. And let me just say, I think Joseph sets a good example for us, uh, particularly on the subject of sexual sin and temptation, uh, but maybe in many different aspects of, of temptation in our lives. Joseph knows that distance is important, right? Joseph knows that to keep her and the situation at arm's length will be the best way to avoid temptation. And when, and when it comes knocking at his door again, when he's faithful, Faced with that temptation, um, in a moment, he knows the best thing he can do is to run away, 
You know, um, for guys uh, in the room uh, who, who want to relate to Joseph, I, I know, you know, we're, we're good-looking guys and, you know, right? Uh, there's all this temptation in life. Yeah, right. Uh, but he sets an example for us, one that I think is really important. Our pride says I can handle it, right? Our pride says when temptation comes, I just stand up to it. Joseph sets an important example. He runs away from it. And the fascinating thing about the way the story plays out is that though he runs away and does what's right, though he maintains his constancy, he, may, he remains constant in temptation, uh, the story turns bad for him. Because um, Potiphar's wife, uh, rejected for the last time, makes up a story. Some of your translation might say that, that he's, he's tried to rape me, right? She accuses him of, of, of assaulting, of attacking her. And in verse 19, um, uh, when his story heard this story that his wife had told him, uh, he said, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, uh, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. All right. So Joseph, uh, though constant in temptation, finds himself uh, in prison. Now, just a little bit of background on the story and what should actually happen to a slave were they to try to sexually assault the owner's master. They would have been stoned on sight. They would have been killed in an instant. So though it doesn't say this uh, explicitly, um, uh, I think we can surmise from this story that uh, Potiphar doesn't believe his wife. That, that Potiphar knows that Joseph is probably innocent in this circumstance, in this situation. He knew Joseph was a man of God. He knew that Joseph was right in the eyes of God um, and, and in the eyes of his master. And so instead of having him stoned, uh, like, like would be uh, customary, um, it, it says he burned with anger. By the way, it doesn't specify that his anger is towards Joseph. It might be towards his wife. We don't know exactly what's going on there. But we do know that, uh, that he throws Joseph into prison. Now, Joseph is going to have a number of experiences in prison. We won't go into detail on them. Uh, on them. He meets a, a, the the. the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker, who are both in prison also. Apparently, they brought some bad food or something. I don't know. They land themselves in prison. They have dreams and tell them to Joseph. And Joseph says, well, here's the good news, Mr. Cupbearer. You will be restored to your position. Um, here's the bad news, Mr. Baker. Your dream says that the king is going to cut off your head. You will be no more. Tough, tough situation. As it turns out, uh, the story plays out exactly as Joseph has interpreted the dream. Joseph says to that cupbearer, he says, hey, when you get back to Pharaoh, tell him about me. Uh, but the cupbearer forgets. And so in another turn of bad luck or bad circumstance, uh, Joseph finds himself in prison for the next two years. For two years of his life, he finds himself imprisoned uh, for something he did not do, for a false charge against him. And I can only imagine what he's thinking and, and asking of God right now. You'll notice it in the story of Joseph. He never... Um, uh, he never hears a direct word from God. You know how when we read through Scripture or read through the Old Testament, it seems like God's just always talking to people? Well, a couple things uh, to consider there. First of all, we hear these explicit, incredible, amazing stories, um, these, these iconic stories where God does speak to people. But think about the millions of Israelites that are not hearing the audible voice of God. And, and in a story like Joseph, one of the most faithful and incredible men that we'll read about in, uh, in Scripture, uh, he never gets to hear that voice. 
And I wonder, for two years sitting in prison, what it feels like to be falsely accused, abandoned by your, your brothers, your own family, and now in prison for a charge that's not true, waiting desperately on the God that he trusts, on the God that he desires to call him up out of this circumstance, knowing that the cupbearer has forgotten him, his brothers are trying to forget him. Life must have seemed quite bleak in this moment. But his story doesn't end in prison. Uh, instead, uh, we'll jump forward to uh, chapter 41 and verse 28, and I'm going to do three little blocks in here. It might be easiest just to follow it on the screen, but 41 verse 28, uh, Pharaoh has had a dream, and the cupbearer says, oh, you know what? Two years ago, when you put me in prison, I met a guy that can interpret dreams. You might want to you might want to talk to him. I, I'd forgotten about that. Surely feels a little bit guilt, but... He's not the one in prison for two years, so he might be okay with it. Um, so he tells Pharaoh there's a guy that can interpret your dream. Pharaoh uh, calls um, Joseph to him. He tells him the dream, and in verse 28, Joseph replies. He says, it is just as you have said, Pharaoh. Uh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming uh, throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. Okay, so Joseph interprets his dream. He says, this is what it means. It had to do with um, skinny cows eating up the seven healthy cows, and it had to do with seven very weak uh, stocks of grain eating up the healthy seven stocks of grain. And, and he says, here's what it is. Seven years of abundance, seven years of drought. But he doesn't stop there. Uh, you know, a, a slave who's been in prison for two years comes before Pharaoh, and he says, but Pharaoh, I'm going to go further than interpret your dream. I'll also tell you what you need to do about it. And so in verse 33, he says, now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. He tells them, store this all up, right? Um, so, so take a fifth and, and, uh, from, from all of the people and store it for those seven years that you'll have very little. And in verse 37, Pharaoh replies, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we make, uh, can we find anyone like this man in whom the spirit, uh, in, in whom is the spirit of God? Sorry. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So in a moment in time, Joseph is taken up out of prison, cleaned up, stands in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is so impressed, so amazed by the Spirit of God at work in Joseph's life uh, that he says, um, I'll put you in charge of all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh will sit higher. So Joseph, in all his twists and turns in life, now finds himself second in charge in all of Egypt, ruling over, uh, ruling over the nation of Egypt. Well, the famine comes seven years later, just as was expected, just as Joseph had said, and uh, things start to get bad, not just in Egypt, but in the entire region. Uh, I should have thrown a map up here. Um, but north of Egypt um, uh, is Canaan. 
some distance away, but the famine has stretched throughout the region, including Canaan. And so Joseph's family uh, find themselves in need. And and, uh, in chapter 42, uh, his brothers come to Egypt saying, hey, uh, we, we need grain and we heard that it is here. He speaks harshly to them. He makes them leave a brother behind. He says, I think you're spying on me. They don't recognize who Joseph is, but he knows who they are. And uh, they say, I'll know that you're truthful if you bring back your youngest brother, Benjamin. Well, dad doesn't want Benjamin to go. So they, they go back uh, to Canaan. They eat up all the grain that they have. And sometime later, they find themselves hungry again. I wonder what's happening to their brother back in prison. Uh, but dad did not want Benjamin to go. They convinced dad the only way we can get more grain is to bring Benjamin. So they bring Benjamin back with them in chapter 43. Uh, Joseph plays a little trick on him. Um, he uh, puts uh, his, his goblet, his uh, special cup, into Benjamin's sack, and then he sends his servants back after them as they're leaving Egypt to head back home with their grain. They find the cup in Benjamin's bag, and the brothers are in absolute turmoil. They vowed their lives and their children's lives to their father. We will return Benjamin, don't worry. And now Joseph has created a circumstance in which they are about to lose Benjamin. Um, so uh, they all go back to Joseph's palace, and uh, Joseph can no longer play the game. He can no longer hide his identity from his brothers. And so in verse 45, the last snapshot that we take of Joseph today, uh, it, it says this, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loud that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The last snapshot of Joseph that we get today, an agent of salvation, and reconciliation. Salvation, that is, he will save his family. Reconciliation, that is, he will bring back into right relationship the severed relationships with his brothers, severed for very good reasons. And while retaliation could just as easily be the end of the story, it's not. It's reconciliation. It's a desire for for right relationship to be restored between him and his brothers. Can you imagine them in this moment as they realized their brother that they had sold into slavery, slaves died quickly in these days. They knew he must be dead. They come face to face with Joseph, who is now ruling over all of Egypt, and he says, it's me, the one that you sold into slavery, and they fall on their faces in tears, absolutely terrified about what 
is about to happen, what should happen in this very moment. Can you imagine where this any movie made in Hollywood, what happens in this moment? It is not what happens in this story, right? Uh, there's no retaliation, but instead they fall on their faces and Joseph says this to them. He says, come close to me. He invites them in. And he says, don't be distressed, because at your very worst, God was at his very best to bring about something far beyond what we could have imagined. And so we ask ourselves, so so what do we take from this today? What do we learn from this? Well, in the life of Joseph, we learn that trust in God, uh, we learn that uh, forgiveness and reconciliation are to be central to who we are as followers of God. We learn that about uh, through Joseph's life. Um, uh, we learn some things not to do through the lives of his brothers, like sell your siblings into slavery, things like that. Those are very bad things to do. But ultimately, we said today, we'd ask the question, um, what do we learn about God in this text? Now, God the Father, we see his uh, perseverance. We see, uh, we see that God is working out a plan beyond what his people can see right? Uh, we see that, that behind the scenes, unbeknownst to everyone else, God has a much grander plan than anyone else could have dreamed up. But ultimately, that's not the primary lesson I want to learn about God today. The primary lesson I want to learn is in God's Son, in Jesus, in his life, death, and sacrifice. You see, I think Joseph's life uh, is a beautiful foreshadowing about of what Jesus is about to do. So look at this list with me. Jesus, who was favored by his father, was also hated by his brothers. Right? The Israelite people, the religious rulers, they, were, they would have him crucified. He was sold for silver, betrayed by one of his closest for a small bag of silver. But he was blessed by God, and God was at work uh, in him through him. He was constant in his temptation, right? 30 days in the desert, and, uh, and, and he remained uh, faithful. Uh, he was imprisoned, and he was beaten, and he was mistreated by many. Yet God has placed him in charge of his people. And in the end, in his death and in his resurrection, he is an agent of salvation and of reconciliation. That is, we find our hope and our salvation in Jesus, and we are invited into right relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So in the story of Joseph today, I want to highlight the parallel the story of what God has done for all humanity. Well, Joseph saved his 12 brothers and his fathers and and his household. Uh, God has written this grand story in which Jesus, who would be mistreated and hated, beaten, crucified, Jesus would be the hope of salvation and reconciliation in our lives. I want to lay that before us today, and I know that each of us today comes from different places in our faith journey. Some of us have been following Jesus for quite some time, and some of us are very new to this, maybe, maybe just exploring and asking questions of what it is to follow Jesus For those of us um, that have asked Jesus to be our Savior, our salvation, uh, today is a day to reflect on his love and his goodness. This week is a time to process and to explore how God is at work in much vaster ways than I could even imagine in my life, how he has created, written for us this beautiful plan of salvation and of hope and invited us into new life. 
And for, the, for those of us today that are just exploring who this Jesus is and what it means to follow him, I want to invite you to consider, uh, to consider asking Jesus to be your Savior. Like there'll come a day when God has worked in our lives in such powerful ways that we say, I believe. And it's at that point of believing that a transformational work begins in which we become uh, the people that he's created us to be. And I'd just like to invite you to explore today, is God inviting you into next steps in your faith journey? Is it a time in life where we're ready to make a commitment to say, Jesus will be my Savior? He will help me to restore right relationship with God, with myself, and with others in my life. Praise God for that good work that he does. If today is a day that you want to take a next step or just want to ask questions of what next steps might look like, I want to invite you just after service today uh, while we're having conversation, take a moment and let's chat about that. Let's pray together about that and let's consider what it means to take a next step in this story of God's good work in our lives and in this world around us. Friends, as we close out today, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for the time we have together um, to, to catch a glimpse of you and your glory through the life of this man, Joseph, who lived thousands and thousands of years ago. But God, we thank you for his story. Um, Father, for your favor in his life, um, for your provisions for him when times are bad, and Father, for the strength that you uh, give your people uh, to be able to be agents of reconciliation, to, to right wrongs in this world. God, we thank you for Jesus and the parallel and all that that he is our agent of salvation and of reconciliation. We thank you, God, for your good work uh, in, in him and in us. And so, Father, we, uh, we pray that today you will invite us uh, just a, a step deeper into relationship with you. Father, that we can hear your voice, that as we realize our frailty, our weakness, and our sin, and fall on our face, Father, that we can hear your voice saying, come, come close to me. Don't be distressed. God, we thank you that when we're at our worst, you are at your best, um, creating far better hope and a far greater story than we could ever accomplish ourselves. God, we thank you for Jesus and the hope found in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.